Good morning. Oh, this is going to be some morning. Turn in your Bibles to Galatians 2.20 while I tell you a story. Oh, the kids are good. They already know what to do. We got them trained. <clears throat> Excuse me. I have had a front row seat in church world for about 25 years. I've had the privilege of being an elder in four different churches over that time. Um, and you get to see, a, you get a front row seat on what God does. And it's amazing. And it is also a consistent heartbreak. Uh, it involves tears. The one thing that has bothered me the most over all that time <clears throat> is something I have come to call the drift. The drift when, after someone is saved, they slip into a colorless beige world. They shift into neutral. They lack joy. And they go through the motions of church. They go through the motions of Christianity, but it's, it's dry. It's not there. <clears throat> There's salvation, to be sure. These are saved people. But there's no, or at most, uh, there's a halted sanctification. That never ends well. Now, <clears throat> being honest, my response to that has not been that wise. The obvious impatience, you know, can't you just read in the book what it says to do and do what God says to do? or worse, giving them a to-do list of things to do to get out of that. That's not good. That's kind of the performance-based pull up, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, pal, and get on with it. That's not helpful. <clears throat> Jesus never modeled that. Didn't do any of that nonsense. What he taught and what Paul expounded on the do list. It's not just some rules, it's just not some self-help ideas. <clears throat> the real foundation for how we our sin, how we live our lives, that foundation is what I am so jazzed about. I am preaching two sermons. Today is the first of two, they go together. The point of both is to restore what we, what we have often been missing in our lives, that freshness, that excitement, that joy, that holiness, um, that back. We want it widespread. I want it breaking out everywhere, especially in my life. The first week I've entitled, this is this week, I've entitled, You Are Crucified with Christ. That's the foundation. The second week, we're going to talk about Christ lives in you. That will be something. I promise. Now, these are topics that you all have heard a thousand times. There are phrases in here that are easy to preach that I have taken out because you've heard them a thousand times. <clears throat> what I want trying to do is help this land, help this truth be so simple and so graspable 
that you walk away with it. <clears throat> really want to communicate that. And it's important because every second after this, your whole life will in fact pivot. It will succeed or fail, so to speak, on whether this is part of your life, whether this truth that God is real to you. We need to be reminded of this because these truths are very, very easily set aside. When we face life on earth, our daily lives, our daily experiences, our own reactions to people and things and sinful and not selfless, those things, <clears throat> they fly in the face of what God says is true. And we tend to prefer our own perception of ourselves. We actually, get this, believe that we know better what we are like than our creator. We are acting, therefore, as functional atheists, aren't we? Not a good plan, but it is so easy to do. That's why this truth is important. This is what's coming from our passage. This is a total tease, guys, total tease. <clears throat> this has got to pique your interest, especially you Bereans out there, listen up. At the close of today, there will be answers to some simple questions. And I would say that you can't, you cannot live an abundant life unless you know the answers, unless you answer those for yourself. You may get to heaven, but it's going to be on crutches. And there's going to be a lot of glory for God and a lot of excitement and a lot of fun and a lot of satisfaction and a lot of contentment that's going to be left in the ditch because we didn't get this. If you get it, if we understand what God tells us, then life ignites like a fire. Regret, shame, malaise, <clears throat> they dissolve. Um, peace can reign in the middle of chaos. Now that sounds good, doesn't it? We can have hope even when there's sickness, when there's disease. We can be joyful and content even when we're lonely. That is what Christ meant for us. That is part of why he died. It's awesome. Second, we're going to learn what the old nature and the new nature mean and why you can only have one. You're going to learn that you are not a sinner. Oh, you brands peeked up to that one, didn't you? You're going to learn why you cannot live a Christian life. And you're going to learn further why your attempts to do so can actually offend a patient Savior. Good things you're doing that really aren't good. You're going to learn how your shoulds and your to-dos and your consistent involvement with church things and your biblical disciplines can even, it's even possible that they would be offensive without the right motivation. <clears throat> Lynn tells me, and I believe her, that the ladies in particular seem to struggle with 
doing the right things all the time, having a to-do list, being the super mom or the super wife or that kind of pressure, that that's a struggle. That's a, you're striving. We just, we just sang about striving when striving ceases. So God's bringing some help today for that. You're going to learn how and why Christ is not with you. You're going to learn he is not helping you to live your life. Grab this fully and every day is a holiday and every meal is a feast. And that holiness and sanctification word that we kick around all the time ceases to be daunting. It's not something that is unattainable. It's actually a gateway to joy. And more important than that, your joy is it's a gateway to glory to God. What he actually designed for you and for him. It's, your whole, it's the whole point of your existence. That would be good to be, have down, wouldn't it? You will have a framework for the, all the choices you make, all your interactions with people, everything that's in front of you. There's a way to live that life. That's what's coming today. I am desperately passionate about this teaching. Can you tell? <clears throat> Because this, at its essence, this is the foundation of the fix for the drift. My ideas don't work. God's do. This is the basis for how we get out of that neutral. Now, if you're one that tends to equate passion and excitement with unhinged fanaticism, don't let that get in your way today, okay? Don't let the fact that I may be a little animated about this um, obscure your view of God's truth. I can't help it, and I don't even want to help it. Someone in this room is going to get this. I hope everybody does, but some, and it's going to change for them. That's what I'm hoping for. I have to make an attribution here, <clears throat> which is appropriate, in in researching this, which is a huge topic, as it is all through the New Testament. Um, Two books in particular came to the fore. One was called The Rest of the Gospel. Now, lest you think that be heretical, (laughs) as if it were new revelation, it is not. It talks about the rest, the quiet of the gospel. <clears throat> it was written by Messrs. Gregory and Stone, and it's, per- it's a very personal story of a pastor who burnt out and just tried all his stuff and finally realized that this truth is the solution for this. This is how he n- rested. And the second one is from a person you've probably heard named Sinclair Ferguson who is astoundingly wonderful. I got to listen to Sinclair at Shepherd's Conference. He's got this delight, I think it's Scottish, he's got this delightful brogue. And he's not just a great theologian, but he's a pastor. He's got a heart, magnificent. The book he wrote is called Devoted to God. Now, it makes me up here with one week, I'm giving you an iced tea glass of the iceberg that is in scripture on this subject. 
This is not a one-week thing, but we're going to do the best we can. I am not the only one that's excited about this. I want you to read something that he wrote at the beginning of his book. It's so good, I want to quote it for you. Listen up. Perhaps most Christians can remember years later, as I can, when and where and from whom we first heard about the indwelling Christ in believers. I was a relatively young Christian, 15 years old, listening to a sermon on Paul's works, Christ in you, the hope of glory. I left the service knowing that my perspective on life had been changed. Christ was dwelling in me. I looked to make sure that no one was watching and skipped all the way home. It was one of the most exhilarating moments of my young life. Now I knew who I was, someone in whom the Lord Jesus had come to dwell. Yes, it takes a lifetime for this truth, grasped in a moment, to penetrate to every element of one's life, but it will never do that unless we have begun to grasp its reality. All biblical truths are important and relevant. Amen. Some have the potential to change in a fundamental way how we live the Christian life. This is one of them. Okay, Galatians 2.20. Paul writes to the Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. One verse. We're going to outline that today in four parts of that verse. The first, the old self is gone. I have been crucified with Christ. If you would prefer a more familiar phrase, the old nature is gone. The old you was not rehabilitated. It was not picked up, dusted off, patted on the bottom, pointed down the right road with Jesus cheering from the sidelines. It was killed. And it was killed in the most visceral way. This was not a death by lethal injection, painless and drowsy. This was a crucifixion. As great as forgiveness of sin is, and it is, God went farther than that. He did not just forgive our sin. He pulled the root out in Jesus' death. It doesn't grow anymore. His power is gone. His death was the death of the old you. And it needed to happen to make way for the new one he wants. They can't both be there. He doesn't share his glory. It's him or nothing. So, what are we going to do with the old selfish you? We're going to kill it. 
Jason's sermon on Ephesians 2 was so cool. Do you remember the analogy? I was, it's not like, oh, I was rocking in the waves of sin and somebody threw me a life preserver. No. You were dead. Your lungs were full of water and moss on the bottom of the ocean and the crabs were eating your toes. You were dead. And God resurrected you. We were dead in our sins and trespasses. That's how good he is. But the old you is still as dead. There is a new you that he gave you. You didn't do it. He did it. It's awesome. If we did it, not so good. He did it. It's great. In Paul's Greek, when he says, I was crucified with Christ, with in that sentence is not a preposition. That's another way to say we are co-crucified with Christ. That's a way in the grammar to say that wasn't two separate. We're together in this. And this is not something we believe because we feel it is true of ourselves because we mostly don't. But it is true because God says it of us. Paul also uses another extremely unique phrase which you have got to understand. He not only speaks about believing in Christ, but also about believing into Christ. That is not a use of the language that was used, or still is. We still don't talk about believing into something. I, be- I believe in the Celtics, or I believe in the Warriors, you can say that. But we don't say, I believe into the Celtics. But that's what Paul says of us. The demons believe in, we're different. It's not just an intellectual self, an intellectual ascent. We believe into him. We're in the family. We are brothers and friends of Christ. We are seated at the table. We're adopted into the family of God. That's why we're brothers and sisters. We have God as our father. We are in Christ. Did you know, did you know Paul never called us Christians? Never. But he consistently calls us those in Christ. This is why. It's vastly different. So we're supposed to be, if we're in Christ, unified with him. When he died on the cross, we died with him. When he raised from the dead, we rose with him. Everything he has becomes ours. And everything we had, which wasn't much, became his. 1 Corinthians 6, but he who is joined to the Lord, that's you, becomes one spirit with him. It only follows that it's not hard for Paul to say, hey, we died with Christ. We we rose with him too. Just makes sense. This is why Jesus is not supposed to be some other reality circling our world. This is why he's not some cheerleader sending you happy thoughts and new Bible reading plans and to-do lists and rules. That is not who he is. He is living in you. Through faith, the Holy Spirit is always working with you, in you. 
It's not external. What does crucified with Christ really mean? We have to go to Romans 6. Now, Romans 6 is the magnum opus of Romans, which is incredible. <clears throat> Something cool I learned. Um, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the, the Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great preacher, someone asked him, when are you going to preach a series on Romans? And he said, when I finally understand what Romans 6 means. So we're in deep waters here. This is not like we're going we're gonna to plumb these. But this is where we've got to start a little bit. Um, <clears throat> so I'm going to read you Romans 6. You don't have to turn there. What shall we say then, Paul says? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, here's the why, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We're going to talk about in the next sermon, this newness of life. Okay? The abundant life is not heaven. Oh, it is. It's better. But it's supposed to be now. It is supposed to be now. I continue. Verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. <clears throat> now, if we've died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin. Once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You can go back. That means the old self is gone. Jesus took your name to the cross. When we're dry, we can also think, oh, he did that for everybody. No, he did that for you. It's okay to personalize that. If you were the only one left on earth, he would have gone to the cross for you. It's astounding. It's astounding. There are two natures. <clears throat> the old sinful self-centered one. The new righteous, forgiven, Christ-centered one. If one is dead, by definition, it's no longer in play. You can't pretend that it exists. can't switch back and forth. Sunday morning, I'm on. Monday evening, I'm off. It's not the way it goes. You can't call yourself something you are not. If you are a cow and you get on the wrong side of the fence and now you're in the highway, you cannot call yourself a car. You're still a cow. 
in many ways we get where we don't belong and we call ourselves something we're not. Can't do that. Paul wanted the Galatians to fully understand their baptism. Did you hear the baptism sprinkled through that Romans verse? The fullest meaning of baptism is not simply that, oh, I trusted Christ. I just want to testify to that. That's not, not all it is. It is a picture of death. You stay under that baptism thing too long, you're going to die. We don't leave you there that long. But that's a picture of rising from death to new life. The early church actually, I don't know how they did this without being naked, but they actually gave the people they baptized brand new clothes to represent this. You're new. The old is gone. The, whole, the new's here. If you're saved, therefore, you're not a sinner. You were a sinner, but the sinners passed away. Sinner died. You still struggle with sin, okay? We understand that. But it doesn't have the power over you that it did. You may never more describe yourself as a sinner because God does not describe you as a sinner. But rather, you're a person who belongs to who is in Christ. You've been taken from death to life. You've experienced the newness of life, even though maybe it's not there today. Dark and light can't coexist. Especially as light as bright as the Lord's. <clears throat> Number two, if the old me died, what or who took its place? Paul says, no, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Now that stands to reason, doesn't it? Being saved, being regenerate, trusting Christ for your reconciliation is absolutely wonderful. It's eternal, the angels rejoice, amen. But it's only part of the gospel. It does not stop there. Remember the founding of this very church? Talked about Matthew 28, 18 through 20. What are we supposed to do as a church? Make disciples, evangelize, tell people about Christ, be excited. That's one. And then what? Teach the disciples all that I commanded them. That's sanctification. That's the second part. That's how to live the abundant life. That's what this church was founded on, those two things. Nothing else. Doesn't fit in that grid, may not be what we need to do. <clears throat> That's our heritage, <laughs> but it's just two things. If the old you is gone, what replaces it? It's gotta be Christ. How dumb would it be to be renewed and then the same person live in that body? What would be the point of that? That's not God's intention. That's what his direction is. <clears throat> Makes no sense anyway. Colossians 1.27. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of his glory, of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Being cleansed and being judged not guilty is not the same as being holy. It is 
it is, this is what I'm seeing, it's really easy to be stuck on saved, okay? I'm saved, I'm going to heaven, yes, amen, good. But we, we stop there sometimes. The, Mr. Gregory and uh, Mr. Stone said, and I think it's true, it is easier to be lost than to live your life off, I'm forgiven, and striving to be a good Christian person. Does that ring with anybody? Are you just doing your best? How many times have you heard Andrew in this pulpit talk about, oh Lord, I'll do better next week? Whose effort is that? Who's the personal pronoun in that sentence? It's I, I'll do better. And it never works, does it? Does it work for any of y'all? Doesn't work for me. I don't have that power when I live for myself. The truth is, you can't live the Christian life. Because if you try to live the Christian life, you're the motivation It is by definition not the life that Christ calls you to live. He calls you to live, let him live out his life through you. Big difference, huh? Me working for Jesus or Jesus living his life through me? That basic difference is gigantic. That changes everything. The sermon next on the 24th is about that process. How, do you, how does Jesus live his life through you? How on earth does that happen? What does that look like? Where's the Holy Spirit? We, we conservative evangelicals sometimes get balled up about the Holy Spirit in our lives. What's making that happen? It's the Holy Spirit in our lives. So we're gonna talk about some of those things, but it's vital. That's the the whole deal. That's what you were born for, to live that way. Jesus gets the glory when he does things through you. There's no glory left for him even when you're doing all the right things on your own. Did you hear that? And he gets less if you're doing it to try to be acceptable to him. He doesn't want that. You can't be acceptable to him by what you do. That's the law. You're now under the law of Christ. Number three, in the flesh. Paul says, and now, the life I live in the flesh. Paul's acknowledging we still live in this body, okay? It's still tainted with sin. We still live in this world which absolutely is tainted with sin, there's a lot of inclinations to bad things, isn't there? He's not, he's not gone with it. How many of you, now don't raise your hands, okay? How many of you believe the Bible? Okay, just do that mentally, all right? Now we just read Romans 6, 6 and 7. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. How many of you really believe you've been set free from sin? 
lower number, isn't it? That's why we balk when we hear that, oh, I'm not a sinner? Wait a second. You didn't see me last week. Why did we balk at that? Because we struggle with it all the time. You look at your life, and you could convince yourself pretty easily that your old self is nowhere near dead. In fact, probably your old self is very much alive. But as we've said, the problem is that perception, that description of you is completely at odds with how God sees you. You can't do that. Dr. Sinclair talked about um, a physician who's, who specialized in addiction recovery, done that for years. And this physician made two observations about addicts who had come out of addiction. The first was that they, he says it'll take at least 18 months or more before they stop seeing themselves as addicts and start seeing themselves as no longer under that but someone who is freed from that. It takes that long to start. Well, we're the same way as Christians. It's easy to see ourselves like we kind of have always been, but that's part of the break. The second thing the physician saw was it doesn't make the heroin or the alcohol or the sex or the whatever go away. It's still there, and we still have those inclinations, and we still have to be attentive to those, but we don't do that on our own power. It doesn't happen overnight. It takes a lifetime for us to get this. We still have our flesh's tendencies. But it's not like we can, you know, there's a big vacuum cleaner that used to suck us into sin, but the plug's been pulled on that one. We can still walk down the same tube, but it's, we're not powerless against it. <clears throat> I'm going to give you some help there. To label, to label yourself a sinner ignores and in fact insults the truth that you're wrapped in Christ's righteousness. It insults the truth that you've, you're seen in his light by the Father. And to bandy that about is not a good thing. It's to deny the notion that you're crucified with Christ, as the Bible says. Because the death of the old Jew and the raising of the new creature is not just eternal life, it's not just salvation, but it's to newness of life, <clears throat> to abundant life, because knowing that is so foundational, if you don't get it, you're gonna be crippled. All your Christian-y activities can become so much noise at that point. Remember Paul talking about, you know, if you don't do it with love, it just doesn't mean anything. Your to-do list for Jesus and all the things you drag yourself through because you should are not the life he prescribes for you. When we're in this mode, which we can get, me too, um, our joy tends to come from earthly things. We have the same worries that our unsaved neighbor has. We react in the same way as the guys in the plant do. That's just a natural outcome of that. Um, 
our holiness takes on a metallic character. We're right, by golly, and they're wrong, by golly. Grace seems to fade in those situations. It's not like we, we take Jesus and just throw him off the throne of our lives, but it's kind of like we live that way, we're in that drift when he's not living through us. Yeah, we've got the theology down, we just not gonna listen to it. I want you freed from that trap. So bad I can taste it. Look at Romans, okay? We're gonna talk about your shoulds and your to-dos. Look at just Romans. Romans has 315 verses, okay? In 308 of them, Paul tells us about the nature of God, the nature of our salvation, who he is, who we were, who we are now, what he's done, grace, faith, the, all those things about God. 308 verses, there are seven that are commands. Now, if we were supposed to do things for God to live an abundant life, don't you think that ratio would be completely reversed? course it would. We'd have 308 verses on what you're supposed to do. That's not the way God approaches it. He's telling us, I want you to see me. I want you to see what I've done. I want you to know who you were and that you're not that anymore because what I've done for you. Now, just getting that picture, that's all. Just understanding that foundation is the, that's how we step off into an abundant life. You're not going to step off into an abundant life without that picture, because it's all you. You're the only one left on the landscape at that point. But if you understand this, then it's all him. And that's when things get exciting. That's when the dryness goes away. That's when God starts showing up in those little things that you can see him work, and it is thrilling. It is, it is awesome. Number four, an entirely new perspective. Live by faith in the Son of God. You indeed have an entirely new life based on faith in someone who loves you so much, he actually died for you. For you by name. Can you imagine if we embraced this? If we just saw ourselves like God saw us, forget a lot of other to-dos, forget this. the spiritual disciplines are great, don't get me wrong. Don't get up and say, oh, Brad said Bible reading plans are bad. No, they're great. It's your motivation for doing them that's important. And knowing you don't have to do them to be acceptable to your Lord. In fact, you don't have to do anything to be acceptable to your Lord because you were dead in your sins and trespasses and he saved you. There's a picture, isn't it? So what are you gonna do now? Make something up? It's crazy. It's easy for us to do though. Once you're free of that, once you're free of that. Can you imagine ladies, if you had a husband who's, who Christ was living through? Are you husbands? What if your if your wife was actually living? Christ was actually living through her. That would be good, wouldn't it? 
Church world would change, wouldn't it? Everything would change. Okay, I promised you some questions. There are four that come out of this teaching that I'm going to draw out now. We're going to go through them. Four questions. You answer these questions, and all of a sudden you have a framework for how to live life. Or, better said, how Christ can live through you. First question, who were you? Well, you're dead. You're sinful. You were either openly rebellious, you know, the nasty, hell's angel, addicted person, or maybe even worse, the self-righteous person that just ignored God. Which is worse? I don't know. They're both not acceptable. But that's who we were. And he saved us. It's astounding. I still can't believe that. But that's who we were. Now, if you understand that, get to the second question. Who are you now? Well, you're not a sinner. You have a new nature. Your sins are forgiven. The power of sin over you has been broken. You have a Savior who's with you in the Holy Spirit every single second of the day, and you're going to heaven. That's who you are. What's going to make your life good? Good. What's going to make your life satisfying? What's going to make it worthwhile? Is it anything material? No. What what is your purpose? That comes to the third question. Whose are you? Who do you belong to? Who's responsible for this change? Is it you or me? No. Did we have anything to do with it? Nope. Nothing. God did it all. He saved you for some reason. I don't know why. I'm glad, but I don't know why. He brought you from death to life. And not just a boring, ho-hum life. You're not here to suffer through every day until you go home to heaven. I hear that a lot. Well, it's really terrible here, you know, the world situation, and I guess God's coming soon. No! That's drivel. That's, would Christ put up with that? Was that the way he lived life? Did he go through with his disciples in those three years? Man, this Roman thing is horrible. These Pharisees, they stink. They're horrible. They're wrecking everything. Oh my goodness, I'm glad for heaven. I'll just wait till then. Are you kidding me? No, he gave us the tools right in the middle of that to be content in that to deal with that, to see the Spirit live through us in the middle of those nasty situations. That's why contentment is not something for the by and by. It is not dependent upon... There's some terrible situations y'all have right now. Right now, just tough, tough situations. 
And yet there can be contentment and hope in Jesus Christ in those things because of who you belong to. Fourth question is the natural. That's is the so what question. So what happens now? How are you going to live your life now understanding that? I'm going to rewind just to say this. If you understand that the old you is gone, that Christ crucified it, and he sees you not as a sinner, he's not looking down at you with crossed arms like this, going, oh, you blew it again. He is a loving father with grace that we cannot fathom. If you see yourself correctly there and just stop there, the rest of it is going to be more clear, isn't it? How to live life is going to be a lot more clear than if you're thinking, I got to do this. I got to do this for God. I need to be, I need to do this self-focused thing. Even though it's well-motivated, I mean, you're not wanting to be terrible, but it's not Christ living through you, which we talk about. Just that, just getting that truth is going to give us the foundation for the abundant life. Now, if you're here and you have no idea what we're talking about, it's like this is the most incredible thing, this God thing who saves you when you're, it's just astounding. It is, it is unfathomable. But it's real. It is absolutely the reality of of the world. There is a creator, okay? There's not a bunch of jumbled up molecules dumped on the ground with an empty AAA battery and then in millions of years it turns into the Taj Mahal in a nuclear plant. That's not the way it works. He created it. And you and me. And he knows us. And despite us turning away, he saved us. If that's tugging on you, you talk to somebody. Don't let that go by. Because that's the most important thing for you right now. And we want you to share that. Yeah, we may struggle. We get dry sometimes. We get in the drift. Got it. We sin. Got it. But we're not going to stay there. We are not going to stay there because of what he's done for us. Let's pray. Lord, um, we are very, very thankful for what you have done with us. And we do not deserve any of it. But to think that you took our old self, all the evil and the sinfulness and the rebellion which was natural to us, and you destroyed it is really encouraging. We don't always live that way, Lord, but we know that that's our purpose to do so. And we know it's your desire for us to do so, and we know you're able to do so. We're just asking that as we understand who we are, that you'll help us just, just simply get out of the way. Don't, we don't want to do things for you. We don't want to do just the right thing to trigger spirits. We don't want to do that. We just want to get out of the way and let you do what you want to do to glorify yourself in us. 
That's our prayer. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.